Growing and scaling a business is complex. It can be very scary and lonely trying to navigate it all. It comes down to the community of trusted people you surround yourself with. Let's dive in to the Business as People podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Today on the show, we welcome Colton Seal. Colton had a distinguished 22-year career as an FBI special agent, finishing his career as a team leader for an elite interagency interview and interrogation team, the HIG, as part of an FBI. BI counterterrorism team. He spent seven years overseas conducting interviews and gathering intelligence in austere environments, including spending most of 2011 to 2012 in Pakistan. He was awarded the FBI Director's Award for Excellence for compiling relevant research related to interpersonal communications, developing the only report-based and research-based interview and interrogation training program in the U.S., and for providing training to thousands of interviewers, interrogators in the U.S. and our partner nations. He has a strong belief that the quality of the information we gain is directly correlated to how we communicate with the people holding that information. He uses all of his knowledge and now runs Pixis Academy. Pixis Academy provides the science of interpersonal communication to corporate intelligence gathering in corporate culture and change efforts, as well as continuing to train federal government clients. Everything they teach is research-based and proven effective, and he is proud to use the knowledge he gained keeping our country safe and transfer his knowledge to those outside of the intelligence community. This is going to be a great and very informative interview. Welcome to the show, Colton. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before coming on, I was super excited to have you on because I think a lot of the, the skill set and the value and solutions that you provide, Colton, is so relevant into all the different components and complexity that has happened with the pandemic and companies going hybrid and figuring out how to communicate with all of their team members, you know, internally and externally. So tell us more about your careers. It's just fascinating, you know, being an FBI special agent. So like, what was the transfer of passion from doing that role to now, you know, starting your own company? As an FBI agent, I started my career in the Anchorage, Alaska field office, smallest field office in the bureau, which is awesome because I got to work pretty much everything the FBI does. And what I found was that I loved talking to people. That was the best part of the job. And in a small office like that, I got to talk to very often eight, 10 people a day. And I took that passion to the overseas work you mentioned. And I don't like the word interrogation, but interviews and interrogations of kind of high value subjects around the world and found, I also love talking to them, but the information that we had on how to do that was sparse. And so when I ended up at the HIG, the High Value Detaining Interrogation Group, where our job was to conduct and compile all the research on how do you communicate with other people effectively, especially people who have a reason not to want to talk to you, essentially, right? Terrorists have a reason not to want to talk to you, and fair enough. But how do we get them to provide us the information we need? And through almost a decade of bringing all that research together, that has become my passion in life and taking that and helping other people now talk to people to gain the information they need. Started that within the intelligence community, obviously, but very excited now to expand it to a, a broader audience to be able to use what we've learned. I might oversimplify this, Colton, but I, what I say to my team all the time is communicate, reset expectations 
communicate, reset expectations. And I even joke around, like, I wish I can just tattoo this to everyone because it's such an easy thing to say, but some reason as a society, we just have a tough time communicating. We have a tough time understanding each other. Like I have the same conversation with my wife. She's like, that's not what I meant, calm. She's <laughs> like, she has to say it maybe the fifth time. And I'm like, oh, and I feel like I'm pretty intelligent. And we both feel like we're communicating very directly, clearly. Well, so why does that happen? I, that's an awesome question. And I think it, it comes down to, it's not what somebody's saying to us, it's what we're hearing, right? We're hearing that through a whole lot of filters and our belief system and our values. Unfortunately, those are very often invisible to us, right? We don't know ourselves very well. So effective communication, first thing comes down to understanding and knowing yourself and knowing why you are hearing something in a certain way. And if you understand that, right, that allows you to better create and send the message you want to. So really the root of all communication is knowing yourself better and understanding why you're interacting with someone in the way that you are. I mean, I feel like I know myself and I think other people are listening and say, yeah, I know myself. So is it when mm -hmm. you know yourself, is it being cognitive to say like, okay, I need to communicate differently so that when they do reply back, I'm being more aware so I can understand. So I think there are two parts there. One is, yeah, we all feel that we know ourselves, but over the course of our lives, right, little bits of culture come in, our experiences come in, and they create a belief system that we only see our behavior, but we're still not aware of those beliefs and values that are driving that behavior. So as much as we love to think we really do know ourselves, most of that is invisible to us. And most of our decision-making actually happens at an unconscious level. It's also invisible to us, right? So that stepping back and really making that effort is important. The second half of what you said is when we're listening to someone, we're very often just listening to the words that they're saying. And again, we're interpreting those words through our filters, but we're not listening for meaning. And it's stepping back and trying to figure out why are they communicating what they are? What are they actually trying to communicate? What is the meaning underneath this so that I can better respond? I'm not just responding to the words, I'm responding at a meaning level. And as you're training, you know, corporate companies or even other government agencies, like what's a pattern that you're seeing is the gap? Is there a pattern? Are you seeing things or is every scenario you're going into is unique? <laughs> Um, it, it does change somewhat by agency or company because every agency slash company brings a culture with it that is different in some ways. But the pattern that I most often see is when people are communicating with each other, it's through essentially a series of closed questions, right? And not allowing other people that opportunity to expand. So it's so simple, just ask open-ended questions versus closed questions to allow us to get to that level of meaning versus just responding to words. When we're asking closed questions, we're responding to the words, not the meaning. It's human nature, we tend to ask closed questions because they're easier, right? We get an answer and great, now I can move on and say the next thing that I want to say, but allowing that space for people to talk. 
Yeah, I've gotten a lot of advice from, from even our VP of sales. He's like, you know, if you're asking more open-ended questions, you get more context. And if you get a chance for other folks to just speak more, to give more depth to it, it just uncovers a lot more information. That's spot on. And that context is so important. People say stuff, but if we don't understand the context that within they're communicating, we lose the meaning. Right. So those open-ended questions, exactly as you say, allow for us to see that context. But unfortunately, we're not great at open-ended questions, no matter how good we think we are at them. One of the hot topics, Colton, that you and I kind of chatted offline about was like culture, like all this stuff at the end of the day boils down to affecting or en enhancing culture. So could, could you unpack that? Yeah, so culture is essentially a result of how the people at the top of a corporation communicate to the people within the corporation. Everything you say as a leader goes into the employees within that company, essentially creating a mental model of what this company is about, what my place within this company is, what are acceptable things to say, what are unacceptable things to say, we create these mental models of what our world looks like based on the information that's given us. So as a leader, constantly being aware of that, everything I say is being taken to form this culture. Right? So words create culture. Words have meaning. They're important. So being very intentional about what you're saying so that the message you're communicating is that we are in a adaptive, evolving, safe place, exciting place to work versus a place that's scary and dangerous, essentially. What's a common thing that you see leaders say, the intent was good, but the delivery was poor? Like, what do you see as a common thing? Maybe it's a word choice or, you know, yeah. I'm trying to find like maybe a, a takeaway that someone's listening and say, oh, I always say that word or I always actually do that. I probably should stop doing that. All right. <laughs> I think a great example is as a leader, say you're looking at an issue within the company or something that happened and your intent might be good. I, I really want to understand this. Your question is, why did this happen? And if we think about that, whenever you're asked why, why did you do this? Right? Why did this happen? What you hear is very often judgment. Right? Why on earth did you do this thing? Right? So those why questions are inherently judgmental. They might come from a place of good intention, but they're heard in a different way. They're heard that I'm being judged. Right? So immediately when I feel that, it's called reactance. Right? I react against that. Right? Now I have to protect myself, and now I have to rationalize what it is that I've done so that I can remove that feeling of judgment, if that makes sense. No, it does. And hearing you say this, I said it yesterday. I say, oh, now why did you do this? Because I'm trying to get an open-ended, but I probably didn't do the right delivery there. So the example was they were building out this plan and pieces of it was missing. So I was like, oh, you guys have a, you know, you have a template and a process. And like, why did you guys miss this? I guess, how could I have rephrased that question as a leader to, so that they didn't feel that they're being judged? So in that situation, there's a piece of the puzzle missing, essentially, and allow them the space to identify that and explain it to you. So 
okay, we have this plan from your perspective, what isn't done yet? What else do we need to do to bring this whole thing together? So instead of you telling them, you're turning it over to them to put that back to you. Right now, I don't feel judged. I feel I'm part of a solution, right? You've created this space for them to identify the issue and fix it on their own, essentially. Okay. That's actually really great feedback. So I'm assuming HR directors must love working with you and C-suites, right? They're like, okay, our team is remote, but we're, we're just not getting a good pulse. Like we feel like performance is down. We feel like morale's down. Help us. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you tackle that? I think that's a common struggle right now for a lot of leaders and companies, big and small. I think there kind of two parts to that. One is the, the relationship between kind of the team leader and the team, right? And how do we address that? One of the most important parts of creating that connection between the team leader and the team is perspective taking. And as a team leader, rather than pushing out what you want, taking the perspective of your team members and understanding what they're facing in this new world. Right, with a lot more online and less connected teams, that effort at perspective taking and demonstrating to your team that you are taking their perspective allows for that better communication. Right, perspective taking, incredibly important there. A corollary to that is empathy, which is rather than that cognitive perspective taking, it's more of an emotional affective way of interacting with people. That becomes really important within the team, right? that intra-team dynamic and allowing that space for them to communicate and see each other as humans and feel that affective bond, that empathy between each other. So perspective taking on one hand, empathy on the other, similar but used slightly differently. Can you give some examples uh, of like what that looks like, just like maybe a, a scenario of each, because I, I think we hear empathy, I hear it too. And it's like, okay, but like, how, how do you really apply empathy? What are ways to apply empathy in a professional environment? So when we're doing these Zoom meetings online, we kind of feel that to create that team bond, it's good to have that five minutes of small talk or something at the beginning. And we mistake that as rapport development, right? If we talk about the weather and sports, everybody's going to have create this rapport and it's gonna be awesome, right? All that is is small talk. There's a lot of research that actually shows that that actually has no bearing on what comes next. If it's just small talk, if it's talk with a purpose, right? A conversation with a purpose that allows us to create those bonds. So for example, as the team leader putting it out there, hey, before we get into this, why don't we talk about what challenges we're facing with our work-life balance with this online environment and what challenges we're facing and how you're managing that, right? That allows people kind of the space to put that out there as I'm listening to someone else experiencing something similar and how they're dealing with it, that starts to create those actual empathic bonds between people, right? That understanding. So, I think just allowing those conversations helps with that. From the perspective taking, that's more, I think a, a leader having to put more effort into kind of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people to build that and make that effort to say, 
what I'm understanding is these are the challenges that you're facing in this new role that we have. And do I have that right? And what can we do to help this work better? So you're putting yourself cognitively in their shoes to see the issues they're facing. You're explaining that to them, right? That from my perspective, this seems to be what's going on. Does that sound right? I mean, so some managers, and you probably run, like, let's say you have like the, the VP who then has mid-managers and that VP says like, Colton, I try to tell my team about, you know, being empathetic, put yourself in the shoes, figure out what's going on to kind of like, you know, support them. But mm-hmm. those middle managers are just not, maybe not communicating in a way that's being effective. So how do you, I guess, find out what the root cause of that is? Why are we still not having employees engaged? I, th- I think part of that is when we talk about empathy, we very often mistake it for sympathy, right? You're experiencing something challenging in your life. And I'm going to say, I'm really sorry to hear that, you know, those types of responses that they're culturally appropriate, but they don't actually communicate empathy. They communicate sympathy, which rather than creating a bond has the potential to kind of worsen that relationship because I feel like you're pitying me rather than helping me through this. So the empathy is making that attempt to understand what I'm experiencing versus what I think you're experiencing and just saying that I'm sorry to hear about that. So allowing someone the space to tell you what they're experiencing and then paraphrasing that back in their words, essentially. And then, okay, if I'm understanding this right, great. Now, what do we do to move forward rather than just say, I'm sorry. What is a concrete plan of moving forward to help someone? I know leaders want the best out of their people. They want them to grow. They want to coach them. So how do you recommend that happens? Like, do they like record? Do they attend with them? Like, what's the best way? Because sometimes it's these little nuances, right? Like you said, it's word choice. And that could literally be the one that has a pivot or transition in the mindset of that person receiving that because of that one word or that statement. And sometimes the only way to to, to catch that is either to be present or watch a recording. So what's the best format for coaching? So I think with coaching, we go back to kind of our high school model of coaching where the coach tells us what to do, right? Which is not what coaching really is. Coaching should be the belief that your employees have the solutions within them, right? They have the knowledge and solutions within them. As a coach, your role is just to help them pull that out, to identify it. So if they are facing a challenge in the workplace, say, rather than telling them what to do to fix it, which is our go-to place, working with them to have them explain the solution, right? So it takes a little bit more time, but ultimately if they have generated that solution, now your job is just to support them in implementing that rather than identifying the solution. And if we look at coaching that way, it's much more effective. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So even my wife sometimes says, you know, calm, I, I just want you to listen and not solve this for me. <laughs> and it, my intention is I want to help. I, I feel like I have the mm-hmm. answer. So I think one part of that is maybe an employee talking to their manager or a manager talking to their boss, right? I guess, what's the difference? How does that leader know when to like solve versus when to just listen? I think it's listening to how is the person communicating to me and what is that underlying meaning? Sometimes it is okay to solve if the person is coming in and saying, here's the problem. Here's what I'm facing, right? It's a very instrumental conversation. Problem, I need a solution. What is that solution? In that sense, it could be fine to offer that solution. If what they're communicating is there's a problem, it's affecting me as a person, my identity, and I'm not sure where to go with this, but it's affecting me. So they're not asking for a solution, essentially. They're telling you, they're communicating how this is impacting them. In that situation, they're not asking you to fix the problem. They're asking you to allow them the space to work through this and try to fix it on their own, essentially, with you supporting them. Right? So one's a very instrumental way of interacting. That's asking for a solution. The other is an identity-based. That's asking for the space to work through this and be coached. When you give someone that space and, and, and leaders see that, what happens to that dynamic of that relationship moving forward? So when you give someone that space, that ultimately develops an actual level of trust, right? So if trust is hard to define and hard to create, it's pretty easy to break, but it's hard to understand how to create it, comes at two levels. One is just that affective trust. I feel good about this relationship because you're giving me that space that ultimately translates into a more cognitive trust. You're thinking about it and you're understanding it. But if you give someone that space and coach them rather than tell them what to do, that develops those trust bonds that then start to extend throughout the organization. I know that all this stuff is so intriguing because communications seems easy. We, We do it all the time, but it's so complex. We still fail at it. I still fail at it. I'm working on it all the time. But ultimately, I think a lot of leaders, why they work with companies like yourself and experts is like, they're really trying to mitigate risk, Mm -hmm. right? So what does that mean, Colton? To mitigate risk? Yeah, like what type of risks are they typically, what are you seeing out there? What are, are, I guess, like some concerns and fears that some businesses that you're working with and like, how are they leveraging this type of solution to help Mm -hmm. mitigate risk? All right. So the way that I look at it, which again is backed up by a fair amount of research, is that as the leader of a company, you need information to be able to make decisions that steer you away from potential risk. Unfortunately, when you're up here, you don't see this pool of risk down here, right? That information isn't always flowing up the, the chain, essentially, because Everybody within a company has some reason to hold on to information or to not give the full picture. That fear that, well, this isn't working out quite the way we expected. If I actually communicate that, that's going to make me look bad. 
or if I pass this up to my boss, and I'm like, eh, I don't want to give all that because that's going to make me look bad. So I'm going to reframe it because we feel judged. We feel there's danger within that. So what I'm talking about and how we can communicate differently is to allow people kind of a feeling of autonomy within their position and that not feeling judged. And if we communicate in a way that removes that feeling of judgment and provides a feeling of autonomy, that actually opens up that information flow, right? Which allows those potential unseen risks to go to move up. So the example I often give, it's a dated one, but I think it still works, is Blockbuster, right? People at the top of Blockbuster were like, we're ruling this space, right? Anybody who worked in a store for Blockbuster knew that their brand was hated. If you paid the rewind fees and all that kind of stuff or the late fees, you came in and yelled at the poor person behind the counter about that. They knew that brand was hated. That information never moved up the chain, right? And for all the reasons that I've talked about, it didn't. So how do we remove those barriers? So whatever organization you're in, those risks are now seen at the top. And that just comes down to how we communicate with people, how we build that culture and how we build that trust. It also sounds like a process. I think companies are, okay, maybe it's like surveying or creating like, you know, you're also impacting when they uncover these gaps and ways to maybe mitigate risks and better communicate with their team members internally, but maybe also externally, right? So have success with their clients. I guess like how involved are you when it comes to like operations and process? I would say there's definitely a fair amount of room for what I do within that, in that we're not just uncovering the risk, but there's a solution to that as well, right? And that communication also involves uncovering that solution and working with the team to make it feel like a team. I'm not just passing information up and now someone else is doing something. I'm part of that process. Right? Even if I'm a lower level employee, I still feel part of that process and I have the ability to point out if I see something where our, our process is going astray a little bit. I'm empowered to point that out and offer that solution rather than just say, yeah, this is the problem. You guys fix it. Let's see if you have a, a leader who is aware that they need this type of solution but they can't get leadership to basically buy in. They're like, I don't think this is the issue. I don't think we're fine with communication. We have awareness of what's going on, but obviously there isn't, there's a gap, right? How do you empower, how do you help that person to change the mindset of leadership to do, you know, to basically do the services that you're, you're providing? I, I think rather than just saying, okay, here's the problem, right? It's adding a, a because that, this is the problem because of this, or here is, if we unpack this further, here is the outcome, right? So when people see not just, okay, here's the problem, they're like, nah, not really sure that is a problem. So if you look at it this way, if you ask someone to do something for you, like, hey, can you loan me $10? They're like, no. Um, but if you say, can you loan me $10 because I need to go buy my wife a present and I don't have the money with me right now they're much more likely to say yes to that, right? So if you add that because on, or 
in the kind of corporate sense, the outcome, now you've attached something concrete to that problem that they can see. And I think if you're communicating up, it has to have that other part to it. That sounds great. I like that a lot because I remember when I was coaching some of my team members on when they're sending emails and you guys are asking the what, but you're not saying the why. And the right. why sometimes helps create the behavior to create the action versus like, hey, can you get this to me tomorrow? But if you say, you can get this to me tomorrow because if I don't get it to tomorrow, you're going to delay the launch of the website, which I know you want that live by Friday. Right. I believe that's the essence of what you're trying to say there, right, Colton? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's perfect. It is the why. And the why can come in two forms. Or the why we need this because if we don't have it, the website doesn't launch. But that why can also be the, the corporate values that are being communicated. If as a leader, you're communicating certain values, and I attach those to what I'm saying, right? That's a different kind of why, but it's still a why. And that will allow that message hopefully to be better received by the people above. Can you give us an example? What does your program look like, Halton? Like what makes it successful? You know, what's the engagement like for something like this? So program in general, um, just going back a little bit, initially I developed this to train people to interview high value subjects, you know, terrorists and spies and all that kind of fun stuff, all of whom don't want to talk to us. I guess what makes it successful and what it looks like, it's about psychology. It's about research and psychology and what works. I've mentioned a few terms already, autonomy and being one. And it's how in any conversation with someone do I introduce genuinely a sense of autonomy, that they have agency within this, right? And I think why it was successful is so many, use FBI agents as an example, FBI agents felt that when I go talk to someone, I need to be in control of that conversation and demonstrate that I'm in control of it, right? And same issue with a CEO or a leader of an organization, they feel that need to be in control of it. You can still be in control in the background, but not removing that sense of agency or autonomy from the person you're talking to. And when intelligence officers and agents that I was working with started to put this into practice and to see that this actually worked, right? That was just a complete sea change for most of them when they realized, now I understand why what I've been doing wasn't working that well. And what I'm doing now, I'm getting all kinds of information. This was guys who had been in the organizations for 15, 20 years, right? They're seasoned agents. And I remember one guy, it was just an amazing experience for me. After he went through the class, he sent an email to his boss that ultimately got forwarded to me. It said, I thought I knew everything about interviewing. And it turned out I really didn't know anything. Now I am so much better at it, right? And which was an exciting moment for me. I'm like, okay, this is great, right? But it's not about me. It's about the research that underlies all of this. And I think that's why it's successful. And that's why what I try to really communicate when I'm working with a client is what, what does the research say? Not just what does Colton say? And then how do we work to apply this within your space, right? It's going to look different in every space and it's going to look different for every person 
but there's still that research underneath it. I, I'm glad you brought the research. I was going to ask this to you a little earlier because I think people we're, we're very also like research and data driven because I think it, it helps ob objectify and like what are some great tidbits that you found through research? Like, do you have any numbers or stats that you can share about you know the effectiveness of of what you do? So looking at interviewing someone for the purpose of gaining information. I'm sitting down with a member of my team and I need them to tell me in detail what's going on with a, a project, say. Within of law enforcement interviewing, there's a technique that was developed called the cognitive interview. And if we look at it real simplistically, it is open-ended questions. It's a lot more complex than that. But just applying the cognitive interview effectively increases the amount of information you gain by about 50% versus a series of closed questions, right? So the core of it is open-ended questions, but then there's a, a lot of how do I kind of put somebody in the right mental space to allow them to remember all of the information that they want to put out there, right? Memory is associative, so I remember one thing, than another than another. I just don't have it all in my head at one point, but allowing that memory to come together, which results in all the information, 50% more. I always bring up this stat and I, I came across some articles said like people forget conversations. They fit like 80% of conversations after 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So do you run into helping folks when they're communicating how do you help the information or that point you're trying to get across stick or resonate when as humans we are just very forgetful because it's, yeah. it's just especially now with like zoom i feel like i'm more forgetful because i'm constantly in zoom meetings <laughs> <laughs> and i have four kids too so it doesn't help so i'm just i have daddy brain all the time <laughs> I, I have eight dogs so yeah <laughs> constantly but right, when we're trying to remember something like you said, we forget most stuff quickly. And the, the reason is, is because we haven't attached it to meaning, right? If I'm trying to remember something or help someone remember something longer term, if we attach it to a value or something that has meaning to us, the why that we just talked about, right? Which can be, again, the cultural values or an outcome-based why, but if we attach that knowledge to something that we care about, then we tend to remember it much better. If I'm just trying to remember a series of facts that I don't have any kind of emotional connection to, I'm not going to remember them, right? I'm going to, that forgetting curve is going to be very steep. That's really helpful. It's crazy how time flew, Colton. I'd love to have you back to dive oh, deeper uh, on, yeah. on, on some items, but you know, we want to know a little bit more about what you're working on and, and if there's the best way for people to get a hold of you, what that is. So what are you working on right now? What's your focus? Right now, I've been working on finalizing a guide to deception detection. And part of it is debunking all of the bad things that we've been taught about how we figure out if someone is telling the truth or not. Most of what we've been taught statistically is completely unrelated to whether somebody's lying or telling the truth, but there are certain things in the way that we communicate and we can use these markers to figure out first if someone's telling the truth and then through a few more steps, whether they're lying to us. So spent about the last year pulling all of this research together to write this guide and hopefully that will be out soon. 
and it'll be published by the, the federal government, but it, hopefully it'll be out there soon. So I'm excited about that. How to contact me, Pixis Academy, P-Y-X-I-S Academy website and contact information is on there, but Colton at PixisAcademy.com email. I'll have all the information in, in the show notes. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah, definitely going to have you back about the lying. I think that's probably could be a reality series in its own. <laughs> I think <laughs> there was actually a show about that. I forgot what it was called. Like Lie was, to me. Yes, yes. I watched a few. That was actually really good. Because, you know, I think with leaders, they want to know, like, are my employees lying to me? And then maybe, mm -hmm. but they're lying to me back. They're fearful for something. I want to let them know it's a safe space to like, be honest. So um, right. love to have you back, Colton, to kind of hash that out more. Awesome. I would love it. All right. Well, well thank you so much for your time and, and, and for your service and helping, you know, all these companies to better communicate. And I learned a lot of great things today. So no, best of luck. Cool. I had, I had fun. Thank you very much. If you have any questions and topics you'd like us to cover, please email me at podcast at or message me on LinkedIn.